0: Amen. Good morning. Thank you guys for being here today uh, after a really weird week uh, in uh, in Memphis, in the Mid-South, and probably in a lot of other places too. But felt kind of like uh, COVID quarantine a little bit for a couple of days there, didn't it? And uh, man, so school canceled all week long, but thankfully we are uh, here today. If uh, they can pack the Orpheum for Justin Timberlake, I think God's church can get together. That's just the way I think about it. So, I'm glad to be here with you all today. We're in a series in the introductory chapters of Joshua titled, Into the Promised Land. Uh, The hope is that God's going to use this series in a preparatory way to get us ready to go into a series of um, vision, values, mission, and discussions like that in our church after this is completed. And so, We're in right now a time of spirit driven transition at Kirby Woods, and it's really an exciting time to be here. I'm certain that there's something we can learn from Joshua leading Israel into the promised land, uh, and as that kind of uh, mirrors our next phase at Kirby Woods. So, two weeks ago, we began the series with a challenge directly from God to Joshua to be strong. And courageous uh, that the land was pre-given to them. They just had to go and take it and carefully walk with the Lord as they did. Uh, We saw last week the story of the spies in their visit to go see Rahab. And uh, she helped the spies get in and bring valuable reconnaissance to the army so that they could plan their attack on Jericho. Now the spies have returned. They've given the report. Israel is ready to take the promised land, they've been camped out in the edge of the wilderness of the plains of Moab for quite some time. Really since the end of Numbers uh, 21, they've been there. And so we've been leaving them there at the, outside the Jordan. But today is the time. And uh, it may have even gotten comfortable for them there camping outside um, the, the promised land. But the time now was to take the land. Again, there is one problem, though. And that was the natural barrier between the people and the promised land, which was the Jordan River, which ran north and south from the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. Uh, And that was standing right between them and the promised land. To complicate matters, they were at the Jordan in springtime when the, the snow runoff from the mountains caused the river to overflow many times its normal size. And that's not to say it was impossible to cross this river. Uh, it, it had been done and it could be done, but uh, a whole people to go across it at full flood stage was pretty significant. And it was going to require something special from God on this day. I did a little Internet research this week to look for the most famous river crossings of history. And I want you to think of what that might be. If I said crossing the blank, what might come to your mind. All right, you got something in your head? All right, let me just tell you what I saw. All right, a few things that I noticed. One, the North Platte River in the 1800s, as many settlers traveled west in America, uh, before bridges were built, many settlers would have to float their covered wagons across and swim their livestock across. But I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You all played the Oregon Trail computer game and have done that a thousand times before you died of dysentery. Um, another famous crossing was the Mara River in Africa, and you may not know what it is, but you've watched it on YouTube. I promise you, it is the one where all the wildebeests and zebras cross that river, and the crocodiles go try to pick them off one by one. And you watch and you root for the zebras, don't you? Only weirdos root for the crocodiles. Come on, don't be that guy. Another one is that famous river crossing of Julius Caesar in 49 B.C., where he crossed the Rubicon River. Uh, his, His term had ended as governor, and he decided he didn't want it to end, and he was going to continue. And so to cross this river into Italy would be an act of treason. And thus he did it anyway, coining the phrase, even today sometimes we use it, crossing the Rubicon, meaning going past a point of no return. Lastly, the most famous example that you probably all thought about was Crossing the Delaware by George Washington. This occurred on Christmas 1776, a surprise attack on uh, Hessian mercenaries hired by the British in what would be called the Battle of Trenton. And this has been forever immortalized because of the great oil painting uh, by uh, Emmanuel Lutz. And that is a pretty sweet painting. I mean, not many things make you want to just feel America in your soul. But you watch Washington holding that flag, going across. You know what I'm talking about. Don't look at me like that. You know exactly what I'm talking about. So there are all great examples, great examples of river crossings, but they pale in comparison to the greats of all time. Because none of those that I just said were miraculous. Swimming, boating, fording a river is impressive. Going across that North Platte River in your covered wagon is impressive, but it's not a miracle. Crossing the Jordan River on dry ground is a miracle from God. And today we're going to study the miracle of the crossing of the Jordan, Israel's campaign to enter the promised land endorsed by God as he rolls out the red carpet for them and shows them the way and that he is with them. Let's pray before we look and read God's word. Pray with me. Lord, we pray that you would use this unusual day in the life of our church, that, Lord, uh, our, our hearts would be attuned to you. That, Lord, this, this story would be more than a story, would be more than history that happened. But, Lord, that there would be moments as we read it that speak to our hearts and show us how you're working today. Help us, God, to apply this. Your Holy Spirit can. And, Lord, above all, that Jesus would be recognized and glorified. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn in your Bibles, if you have it, to Joshua chapter 3. Joshua chapter 3. This morning we're going to overview a story that takes two chapters of real estate in the Bible, Joshua 3 and 4. I could have split this up into two stories, decided not to because it felt very much like one narrative to me. So I'd like to keep it that way. And uh, so we're going to have to select our text as we go through two chapters today. So... Uh, first, we're going to look at Joshua 3, 1 through 6. Let's read that together. It says, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of your God being carried by the Levitical priests, Then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priest, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. So the first thing that we're going to see, if you're taking uh, notes, if you have a, a, a bulletin handout on the back side of that is where you can take some notes. If you are taking notes, number one on our outline today, we're going to see spiritual symbolism. Spiritual symbolism. Now, I don't mean to infer that this did not literally happen. It did. But there are things throughout it that point to something that God was doing on a spiritual level. And I want to show you that. Everything about this moment was loaded. Every single thing that happened that we just read had a spiritual significance to it. I guarantee no other army was doing what we just read about. No other pagan army, no other Canaanite army was doing what we just read about. And it only proves that God was very much in this and had his hand all over this. And he wanted to be given the glory in it. So there are three items in this paragraph I want to bring your attention to to magnify the spiritual significance. First, we see priests leading the charge. Priests leading the charge. So, after the people leave their camp in the plains of Moab, they get right up to the Jordan River's edge. The officers go through and they give all these instructions from Joshua that he got from the Lord. The sign that it's going to be go time, the sign to get up and start walking, is when you see the Levitical priests setting out with the ark, they're going to go first. Now, this is where a question should arise in your mind. What message would God be sending to the people by sending in the priest first? I mean, let's let's be honest here. If anybody's in armed services, you can tell me this because I've never been in hot battle before. But do the Marines send in chaplains holding Bibles first? Do they do that? I've never heard of that happening. No. So God is sending a message here, a profoundly spiritual entrance into the promised land. This was a miraculous moment, a crossing of the Jordan that was spiritual. And the conquest was endorsed by God. What would follow? Because God opened the path for them. They were not swimming across. They were not building a dam upstream. They were not fording the river. There was something behind this. Secondly, the event becomes spiritual because it's not just the priest. But they are holding the Ark of the Covenant. They're holding the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was built in the wilderness as the centerpiece of tabernacle worship. It was the box on which uh, the atonement took place, the blood sprinkled behind the curtain in the holy place. This was the most holy item the Israelites had because it symbolized the presence of God among his people. That's what that box means. It's a symbol of God's presence with his people. Uh, it was the location where they met with God. It's kind of like this building. It's, it's just a building, but at the same time, it is, it is special because of what it symbolizes to us, and we meet with God here regularly. So it's just a box, but it's not just a box, you know? There's something to it, and that's, that's how they saw it. So um, inside this box, in case you're ever on Bible Trivia, don't embarrass me if you get on Jeopardy! I want you to know, was the Ten Commandments, the Staff of Aaron, and a Jar of Manna, all right? You can remember that. If you ever go to Bible Jeopardy!, You got it. Ten Commandments, Staff of Aaron, Jar of Manna. There were very specific instructions on how this ark was to be moved. First of all, they had to carry it with poles. You didn't just, like two guys getting a couch from Ikea, you know? You didn't just lift it like that. Um, It had to be from the tribe of Levi. The movers had to be from the tribe of Levi. Uh, And actually, it was not customary for the temple priest to move the ark. They had this other group of Levites called the Kohathites, who had, were kind of like the Rhodes. They were like the temple Rhodes, and they moved it. But on this particular day, the request from God was that the priests were to carry the ark out into the middle of the Jordan. Also, just an interesting point, if you look at verse 4, it says that there was to be a distance between the people and the ark, 2,000 cubits. Now, Bible measurement... Cubit is the distance from your elbow to your fingertip. So 2,000 of those, all right? Even though the camp was being moved, the rules didn't change. God was still holy, and there was still to be a distance between him and the people. The fact that your average Joe could not just walk up and take a selfie with the Ark of the Covenant for their Instagram reveals the lesson that God wanted to teach his people. He is holy. You are not like me. You cannot just walk up here and touch the Ark of the Covenant like it's it's nothing. There was supposed to be an awe in the people for the Ark. There was supposed to be a holy respect and reverence. And again, that is symbolic. Imagine if you have that for a box, what you're supposed to have for the living God. So the last spiritual emphasis we see is the instruction that comes in verse 5 when Joshua tells the people, consecrate yourselves. Consecrate yourselves. Why? He says, well, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. What's consecration? It means to set something aside for spiritual use, to make something holy, to, to put it apart from the regular stuff. So for example, there, there were bowls that the people of Israel used to eat their Captain Crunch in the morning and there were bowls to be set in the tabernacle for holding water, incense, and blood. Both are bowls. One's holy, one's not. There were candlesticks that light the bedroom at night. and Then there's candlesticks that were the golden lampstand in the temple. There was white bunny bread you used to make sandwiches. And then there's the show bread, the bread of presents that was baked by the priest. It's all bread, but not the same bread. One was set apart. One was consecrated. So when Joshua told the people, consecrate yourselves, what did he mean? Well, he meant, first of all, in the night leading up to the crossing the next day, straighten up. Be on guard against any sin that would offend the Lord. He meant wash up, clean yourself, literally, ceremonially bathe and prepare yourself for a holy moment. He would have meant to watch out for what you eat. Abstain from sexual intercourse or sin. The point was that this next day was going to be a day when they saw God do something wonderful. Do not take that lightly, Joshua is teaching them. Do not expect him to do it and take it for granted. Do not think that God owes you miracles. This is such a powerful recurring reminder in Joshua Expect God to do great things, but don't take God for granted that he has to do great things. Believe that he will work in your life. Believe that he will work in this church, but don't think that then it doesn't matter how you live and that he owes us something. God can do a work through anybody he pleases. Now, we saw last week in in Joshua 2, he did a work through Rahab the prostitute. Now, that doesn't mean we should all become prostitutes, right? It doesn't mean also that God doesn't care about sexual sin. God can use whoever he wants despite their sin. Just read the book of Judges. You'll get plenty of that. But he has the full right not to work in us if we become cavalier about our sin. So Joshua's point was God's about to do a wonder How can you prepare yourself to receive it? That's the spiritual significance of this moment. It is to be led by priests holding the ark at a distance from the people, and then the people are to consecrate themselves to prepare for God to work. God's about to work. He's leading the charge, not on military strength. Number one, it's a spiritual matter. Number two, we see it is a culminating miracle. It is a culminating miracle. So the plan has been revealed. This would be a sign to the people that the Lord was with them. And now we're going to look at Joshua 3.13 for the miracle itself. It says, When the soles of the feet of the priests, bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. And the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped into the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood And rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethon. And those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all Israel was passing over on dry ground until the nation finished passing over the Jordan. So, Here we see the famous crossing of the Jordan. I want you to picture this in your imagination. As soon as the priests holding the Ark of the Covenant get their feet in the water, the river begins to wall up on one side. And again, the text wants to remind you this is flood season. They they tell you that a couple times. This is flood season now because it's supposed to be impressive to you. Way in the distance, they see down at the, the next city on the river, they see the water walling up, way down in the distance. I like to think, what, what if you were living in that city down there and you didn't know what was going on upstream? You just, you're out for a swim one day, then all of a sudden, you're swimming sideways. So, now, while the priests hold the ark and stand in the middle of the Jordan, the people pass by on the other side. And again, the text wants to make sure you know it's a miracle because they mention again the dry ground, the dry ground. If let's just say you took a liberal reading of this and you wanted to say, well, they probably made a dam upstream. You know, they made like a couple of beavers and and, they, uh, and, they just, and then they wrote about it later like it was a miracle. Well, what's up with the dry ground thing? They walked through on dry ground. Even if you stopped the water naturally, you would still have muddy river to walk through for days and days and days. This was to tell you this was a miracle of God. Not only did God stop the water, he dried up the ground for them to walk through. Now, I told you to uh, be on the lookout uh, in this series for a few moments where God does something for Joshua that he did for Moses to affirm the leadership of Joshua. Here is another example. What Old Testament story should this remind us of? The crossing of the Red Sea. Very good. This is supposed to be a bookend, a culmination, the ending of one time. And the beginning of another. So Moses saw the glorious exodus of the Israelites through the parting of the Red Sea as the Egyptians chased them down. This was a transition from slavery to freedom, from Egypt to wilderness. They had been through the wilderness now. And now it was time for another transition from wilderness to promised land. And just as they miraculously crossed a body of water to get out they now miraculously cross a body of water to get in. Why is God doing this? Well, several reasons. First, to show that he's in this. To show that nothing is impossible with him. To show that if they follow him every step of the way, he will be with them. Every battle will be just like this. If you keep following me, the same way I got you in is the same way we're going to clear out this land. But it also shows something else. Matthew Henry said these words, The miracle of the Red Sea crossing under Moses was repeated in the Jordan River crossing under Joshua to show that God has the same power to finish the salvation of his people that he had to begin it. Think about this. God did not bring the people out of Egypt to leave them to finish their own salvation or to to find the promised land on their own. He was with them to bring it to completion. Isn't that true of our salvation today? The same God who began a good work in us will be faithful to see it through till the end. Jesus didn't start something without a plan to finish it. And praise God, he doesn't strand us in the wilderness, but rather carries us across Jordan's stormy banks to our everlasting rest, our everlasting inheritance, a promise better than a plot of land, on the ground in Israel, but a recreated heaven and earth with Jesus in the middle of it. This day in the crossing of the Jordan, they got a taste of the coming reality that we will one day get in full. However, what they did get was an incredible display of God's power. That's number two, a culminating miracle. Next, we will see number three, a celebration of faithfulness, a celebration of faithfulness. So it happens just as God said. All the people cross over on dry ground, but before the priests leave the middle of the river, before the water returns, there's a quick little ceremony. They just want to get something in. We got to do this real quick. Look at Joshua 4, 5 through 9. And Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan And take up each of you, he's talking to 12 men now. He says, take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. And when it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off, so these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial Forever, And the people did, just as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the middle of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and there they are to this day. So, so they've passed over. The priest and the ark still out there. All the people have gone over, but the priest and the ark are still standing in the middle. And God speaks to them and says, Joshua, get a man from each tribe, go out into the river and bring back a stone. And it says they, they carried each stone on their shoulder. To just give you an idea of the size of what that would have been. Verse 6 tells us exactly why this is happening. It's a sign for the people. Now I looked up that Hebrew word sign. And and it was a very helpful definition said, a marker intended to bring something to mind. A marker intended to bring something to mind. You know, we do this from time to time. There's there's, every once in a while something will happen somewhere and we'll put up a plaque or we'll put up a little monument or a statue. Um, You can go see a a huge one if you go to New York City where the Twin Towers once stood. They now have a, a, a big monument there to help people, hopefully, never forget, what took place and to remember those that lost their lives that day. This is a little bit like that. There would come a time when a generation would die off and, and children would be born who weren't there, but they needed to know they still needed to know what God did with their forebears. And, and just so you guys know, this is the exact story that inspired the baptism signature wall that we built this year uh, up in the behind the baptistry. Um, where everyone who is baptized can sign the wall. And, And if you read the top, the little font that we put up there, it's this verse. This verse is up there to remind us of this. These things are good in the life of a church to do. Now, certainly there are some churches who have an unhealthy obsession with the past and want to live in nostalgia so much that they are crippled in the present. Now, that's not good. We don't want to be that way. God is always working, always leading us forward. Uh, We don't need to become a museum and worship the past or a mausoleum as a monument to the past. Can we agree with that? That's not what God's called us to do. But it is also good to remember the faithfulness of God and celebrate things God has done over time. It is good to tell stories to the younger generation and let them know that the same God they worship. Is the same God you worship and the same God Granny and Grandpa worship. They need to know that. That's how you have a healthy multi generational church. One generation commending the works of God to the other. We don't want to, and I say me, our, our younger generation, I can't say that for much longer, by the way, but we don't want to pretend that we've just discovered Christianity. You know, sometimes young folks, we, we kind of act like, oh, everybody before us was a bunch of morons, and we're so glad we figured this out. Don't be like that. There's a lot of people that have gone before us and have worshiped the Lord. We need to remember that and celebrate that as is appropriate. So here's the template for how to do that in Joshua 4. As you're moving forward, as you as a church are moving forward and you see God doing something Stop and give him credit. Stop and give him credit. Don't be afraid to build a monument to the greatness of God, not of man, of God, especially if it's a teaching device for the next generation. Especially if it's a teaching device for the next generation. But here's the caveat don't stop and forget that the promised land is always ahead. Until we get there, until we pass over in glory, it's always ahead. Don't let your momentary celebration become a season of slouching or a seven-year slump or a decade of decline. Celebrate the faithfulness of God as you are moving forward. One more little interesting piece to this story is that actually most people forget there's two monuments built. One is the one that we just talked about in the land, and then there's a second one that Joshua builds, a 12-stone monument right in the middle of the river. And what I just think is interesting about this is that the waters are going to come back. Nobody's going to see this thing ever. Uh, and, And I just think every once in a while, there's something to that, that sometimes we just need to say, God knows it's there, and I know it's there, and that's okay. We've seen a spiritual symbolism, a culminating miracle, a celebration of faithfulness. Lastly, number four, a sober reality, a sober reality. So this last part I want to cover with you is something that I've never considered before as I've read this story. Um, It's not even explicitly in the text, so I'm I'm trying to be careful that I'm not stretching something here. But I think you'll agree with me that this would be a sober moment for the Israelites. The people have all crossed over, two monuments built, now the priest's, are the last out. Look at Joshua 4.18. 4.18 says, When the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. So picture this as if you're there. You've crossed over, the priests step out of the Jordan, and a big rush of water crashes in behind you. Full flood capacity, and the river's full again. Do you think there might have been a moment when the Israelites had something click in their minds to say, oh, this is for real now. This is happening. There is no going back to the wilderness now. We are finally here, and the only way is forward. You see, it's an amazing thing in life when you take away the opportunity to turn back what you're capable of and how God will use a mindset like that. I'll give you a concrete real-world example. Anytime I'm doing premarital counseling for an engaged couple, getting ready for marriage, I will always ask them a question. I'll say, I got to know this before we get too far into this discussion. Is divorce off the table? Is divorce off the table? And, and, I, and I have them talk about their views of divorce, you know, uh, adultery, abuse, abandonment, what would constitute an, an unbiblical divorce or um, such as I, I just don't love him anymore or uh, she just gets on my nerves. We talk through all of those things. And it's because I need to know before we start, before we start, if a purely irreconcilable difference is divorce is off the table. Married folks, you know this. You know that when the door is shut, you fight different because you both have to survive the fight, right? When you get into a fight between a husband and wife who are not interested in divorce, you may have hard words, you may have hard feelings, But ultimately, you have to solve the problem because you're married to the person in a covenant. You are pre-committed to work it out. And if divorce is always an option, you always keep that trump card in your mind, and it just lingers, that little get-out-of-jail-free card. That old phrase is true. It's amazing what you can do when you have to do it. It's amazing the resolve in life that you have to do what needs to be done When not only the will to go backwards is gone, but the opportunity to go backwards is gone. You know, there may have been an unspoken comfort to the wilderness. You ever think about this? Go here with me for a second. I've never heard anyone say this. Just think about this with me. There may have been an unspoken comfort to the wilderness. I mean, let's just think about it. They had manna and quail delivered to them every day. I know they said they didn't like it. I know they've complained about it, but they had DoorDash on, on demand all day, every day. They had the pillar of fire and cloud telling them where to go, when to go. They all lived in camps. They never had to build anything permanent. You know, if they didn't like a spot, they'd just get up and move. But pretty soon, all that was going to change. It was time for adolescent Israel to leave the nest and be their own nation in their own land and there was nothing behind them but there was opportunity before them you know i've tried to apply this series to where we are as a church and where we are going you know what i love about where we are today kirby woods though we are a church that has a rich history and a lot of things that deserve celebration and a 12-stone monument here or there. We are not looking back over our shoulder. There is nothing in the past that we are feverishly trying to revive or recreate. There is no golden era or glory day that we're hoping to return to. We have walked over the Jordan, Kirby Woods. The river has crashed behind us. Something new lies ahead. And furthermore, there's nothing to go back to. You know, it's a fun time to be at Kirby Woods right now. Anybody here want to say amen? It's a fun time. I'm having fun. That means something, right? It's a fun time to be at Kirby Woods. And why do I say that? Because our church is more excited about what God is going to do in us tomorrow than that we are worried about what he did in us yesterday. That's a powerful place to be. Is that true for you? In your life? Are you more excited about what God is going to do in your life tomorrow than you are trying to get yesterday's blessings back? If the waters of the Jordan came crashing behind you and the only option was to walk forward in the path that the Lord had for you in your life, would you gulp with anxiety or would you be energized, strong, and courageous? It's a sober reality to have the retreat path swept away. Nothing else lies ahead except for the potential of what God can do with an obedient, faithful follower. That's where you need to live your life. So, we've seen with the crossing of the Jordan, spiritual symbolism with priest leading, the culminating miracle, the bookend of the Red Sea miracle the celebration of God's faithfulness with the 12 stone monuments, and the sober reality that the wilderness is closed but the promised land is wide open. What would God do with a man, a woman, a family, a church that is moving forward for him and not looking back? Jesus said no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Praise the Lord, he leads us over Jordan, into the promised land, and he promises never to forsake us in the wilderness. Let's pray.